Please turn in your Bibles to the 37th chapter of Genesis. In O'Halsby's book, Religious or Christian, he has a chapter on temptation. He says, in the hour of temptation, something very significant takes place within us, something very decisive in its importance, something vital to our whole being, the whole course of our life, not only temporal, but the eternal as well, is determined in these fleeting moments. That's why the invisible world is so active in the hour of temptation. Of course, heaven is also active in the hour of temptation. Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not, said Jesus. This puts the hour of temptation in a new light. An intense battle is fought, not only in the soul of man, but for the soul of man. Jesus tells us this in order to arouse us from our thoughtlessness. We live our lives carelessly as though temptation were a joke or a picnic, while they who are in the realms of the eternal take it seriously and engage in a life and death struggle for the frivolous and thoughtless souls of men. Oh, that the Spirit of God might arouse us to see the eternal seriousness and the eternal hazard of life. Our society is drowning in a sea of immorality. Uh, there's a crisis of integrity in our nation that is appearing in every realm, whether it's government or business or stocks and bonds or Wall Street, whatever. Temptation is God's character development curriculum. It's God's magnifying glass to show us how much work is yet to be done in our souls. In Genesis, we come to Joseph. And uh, one of the things we hit in Joseph's life is his overcoming of temptation. He was tempted sorely, but he overcame it. Maybe we can learn from Joseph how to combat temptation. You have the treachery of his brothers brought out in chapter 37. They hated him, and we're told the occurrence of that. In verse 3 of 37, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him uh, more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. The favoritism on Jacob's part creates envy and jealousy on the part of the brothers of Joseph. And that's tragic where favoritism is bestowed. It bears its seeds in the heart. But Joseph uh, didn't help matters any. God sends Joseph a dream. In the dream, uh, they're out in the field binding up sheaves, and his brother's sheaves bow down to him. And he has another similar dream, and 
He shares this dream with his brothers, and that doesn't help matters. When he did that, they just hated him the more. In verse 5, Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. They plot to kill him. And one day, when they're out in the field, and his father sends them, sends him to them, as he approaches, they plot how they will do this. Verse 18, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. They throw him in a pit as they debate how to dispose of him. But then a wandering band of Ishmaelites or Midianites come by on their way to Egypt, and they decide to sell him instead. Verse 28, they passed by a Midianite merchantman, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, his brothers did, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Treachery. In the Egypt, he sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guards. If you look over in chapter 39, we have the occasion of the temptation. Potiphar's wife is of such a nature that She's attracted to Joseph when we're told that Joseph was a handsome young man. In verse 6, Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. Potiphar places Joseph in charge of his whole estate and household. He makes him the chief steward. He manages all of his affairs and is over the other servants. Verse 7, it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. Go to bed with me. Make love to me. Now, Joseph is a young man. And uh, he had a sex drive like we all do. Powerful temptation. What temptation do you face? Spoke recently to a salesman in our congregation who told of a purchasing agent with another company that he dealt with that made him a a deal, offered him a deal. I'll purchase millions of dollars of material from you if you'll split your commission with me. Strong temptation. No one will ever know, etc. What's tempting you? It's powerful. Howlsby, in his Hour of Temptation, talks about the effect that temptation has on our feelings and on our intellect and on our will. In our feelings, a fierce desire for the forbidden thing is kindled. For the moment, this thing seems the most important and most valuable to us, more valuable than anything else in the world. That's the effect on the feelings. Intellectually, temptation affects us as a weakening of our powers of judgment, not only of our moral judgment, but of our intellectual judgment as well. Our usual ability to judge values is lost, and sin appears less and less dangerous. All the breaks of the intellect are taken off. The most intelligent people can perpetrate in the hour of temptation the most unheard of acts of foolishness, acts of which they often repent for a whole lifetime afterwards. On our wills, too, the temptation has a paralyzing effect. Our many good resolutions made in the ordinary course of events between the hours of temptation melt like wax 
and disappear between our fingers. Temptation renders us weak and feeble. In the hour of temptation, we indulge in wishful thinking in its most blatant form. If our actions cannot be defended on moral grounds, we become the more zealous to defend them on logical grounds. And then it is that the inner dissimulation begins, where we lie to ourselves, and so on. Well, how do you overcome temptation? This is strong. There's a pressure on Joseph to conform. Uh, you experience pressure to conform, peer pressure. This is his boss, his boss's wife. She's in a position to hurt him if he doesn't accede to her wishes. There's a certain threat that comes with the temptation. We live in a society that threatens to punish if you don't go along. It's not just your peer group pressure, although that's certainly there, but our whole society is becoming pagan. The whole idea of there being absolutes, fixed standards that God has given is challenged. And those standards are certainly not fashionable in our society. There's the power of the temptation that weakens our will and our intellect. And there's the pressure to conform. Notice the persistency as it went on and on in his case. In verse uh, 10, it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. Every day she would bring this up. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis says, Resisted to the end, the temptation could run its full course and display all of its strategy, the first approach, flattering and startling. Uh, the long attrition where she forever reopens the closed question. And then the final ambush, when all is lost or won in a moment. In uh, verse 11, it came about at this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men in the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, an ambush, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Now, he overcame. It was powerful. It was persistent. There was a lot of pressure. He overcame. How did he overcome? How did he triumph over that temptation? Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, if the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph was with the Lord. Joseph was a committed man. Early in life, he made a commitment to God to obey him, to walk with him, to trust him. He was taught how you could be right with God by his father, Jacob. In those days, you were to bring a lamb and offer the lamb for your sins. That lamb couldn't the lamb's blood couldn't atone for a man's sin, but it could picture a lamb-like person, Jesus Christ, who would come and make payment for man's sin. And so God set it up. 
that he would be approached through the blood of the Lamb. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. That was the great lesson of the Old Testament, as the book of Hebrews sums it up. You and I, if we're to be committed people, we would come and commit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Lamb. If you want to overcome temptation, you start there. How do you commit your life to Christ? Well, you acknowledge your sin, that you've violated God's law. And you believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sin. You believe His claim that He was God the Son, that He did die on your behalf, and making payment for your sin, that He rose literally from the dead. And you commit yourself to Him in trust and in surrender. You receive a Lord and you trust a Savior. You trust Him to forgive you and to come and live in you and change you. This morning, one of the elders was sharing with me how uh, when he made a commitment to Christ, that Christ began to change him. And one of the first things, he'd been trying to break the habit of foul language. And he tried and tried and tried, and all of a sudden, he committed his life to Christ, and that habit was gone. Christ will change us as we commit our lives to him. That's the beginning of overcoming temptation. Are you a committed person? Have you made that initial commitment, and then are you walking with him, using the means he's provided? Prayer, Christian fellowship, the word of God. Joseph was a committed person. He was with God, and God was with him. Second principle, he called this thing that she was proposing to him by its proper name. We have a tendency to rename things. You notice how he referred to it. Uh, <clears throat> uh, he, he called it sin. We say, uh, she's having an affair. That sounds nice, doesn't it? You mean that she's running around on her husband and committing adultery with this fellow at the office? Well, good night. You didn't have to phrase it that way. But is that what she's doing? Uh, we say uh, we say he's sowing his wild oats. You mean he's fornicating with every female that'll let him fornicate with? Well, you don't have to say that. But that's what he's doing, you see. But we rename it. We say he's gay. But you mean he's engaging in a perversion called homosexuality in Scripture and it says that if you continue to do that, you're going to hell? Oh, good grief. You don't have to put it that way. But that's what Scripture says. We tend to rename things and then they lose their taint of sin and evil. He called it by its right name. He conceived of it in the proper light. Notice what he says to her. He says... Uh, in verse 12, he, verse 8, he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master knoweth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There's none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this? Great wickedness. He said, It would be a betrayal of trust. My master has trusted me, and this would be a terrible betrayal of trust. He conceived of it in its proper light as a sin against man. Compare David. 
David was tempted to commit adultery. And he betrayed the trust of one of his mighty men and committed adultery with Uriah's wife and then sent a letter with Uriah that called for Uriah's death when he arrived with the letter. He betrayed Uriah's trust. Joseph didn't do that. Jim Peterson, a missionary with the Navigators, tells about being in Latin America on a plane trip and an attractive young lady sat next to him on the plane and she engaged him in conversation. He was trying to read a book and he would just try to ask her and answer and get back the book. He realized after a little while that she wanted companionship, so he just spoke directly to the issue. He said, I travel a lot and many times I'm lonely. I often encounter temptations to be unfaithful to my wife. But I've decided it's not worth it. I know I could deceive her, but the basis of our relationship is our mutual love and confidence. She trusts me and I trust her. I've lived long enough to realize that meaning in life is not found in seeing what I can get away with or in bigger achievements or in a position or how my leisure time is spent. I've learned that meaning is found in relationships. Consequently, I don't intend to destroy the best relationship that I have. If I came home having been unfaithful to my wife, even though she might not perceive it, even though I could keep it from her, I'd know she would come to me with her blind confidence and I'd have to somehow create distance between us. We'd be pulled apart and she would never know why. Soon we would be strangers living together under the same roof. The ones who would pay most heavily would be my wife and children. That strikes me as the height of selfishness. The girl was dumbfounded. And she began to open up. She said, I'm 24 years old. I ought to be getting married. But all my married friends have affairs. And if that's the way it is, I don't want it. When my friends go away for a weekend, their husbands are soon knocking at my door. They're like little boys. I just don't think I could handle it if my husband were like that. And she added, I've never heard ideas like yours. Where do they come from? He said, you'd laugh if I told you. She said, no, I wouldn't. He said, the Bible. And he proceeded to share the gospel with her. About that time, the plane landed. He didn't have a chance to, to actually wrap it up as he would have liked to have. When they got off the plane, uh, she was ahead of him. And as he came off, she had a group of friends. And she said, this is the man I was telling you about who had such tremendous things to say. Again, he couldn't get with her. A year later, he was in the same city and went to an evangelical church in that Latin American country. He saw her sitting in church. Afterward, he went up to her and said, I sat behind you, or beside you on the plane. She said, oh, I remember you. That conversation changed my life. Betrayal of trust. He conceived of it in the right light in regard to his relation to his fellow man. But also in regard to God, he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Sin against man, sin against God. You know, God details very clearly his standards in the area of sex. First Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8, reading in a modern translation, For God wants you to be holy and pure and to keep clean of all sexual sins, so that each of you will marry in holiness and honor. And this is also God's will, 
that you never cheat in this matter by taking another man's wife, because the Lord will punish you terribly for this, as we have solemnly told you before. For God has not called us to be dirty-minded and full of lust, but to be holy and clean. If anyone refuses to live by these rules, he's not disobeying the rules of men, but of God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. A sin against God. You know, when temptation is strong upon you, only one thing is going to keep you. If you're in a position where you don't think you have anything to lose and no one will find out, the only thing that will keep you will be your love for God. A lot of people do all right until they're in that situation and they live a fairly moral life. But when they get in a situation where they think no one will know and there's nothing to lose, why then they fall. If you haven't fallen, it may be that you just haven't met Potiphar's wife. How strong is our commitment to the Lord? He caught it at the right time. When she made this suggestion, he didn't entertain the suggestion. He didn't say, well, gosh, uh, I don't know, let's talk about it. Why don't we go have a cup of coffee and think it over? He didn't do that. When she proposed, lie with me, he said, no. He didn't entertain it. Again, think of David. David's walking on the roof of his house. And he looks down, he sees a, a woman bathing. She was beautiful. How did he know she was beautiful? Because he kept looking. He didn't immediately reject the thought. Jesus is going along the road to Jerusalem, and he tells the disciples, I must go up to Jerusalem and be betrayed, uh, be tried, condemned to death, crucified. Peter said, Not so, Lord, be it far from thee. And Jesus said, You don't think I ought to do that? Well, that's an interesting idea. Let's talk that over. He didn't say that. He said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of men. He didn't entertain it. He didn't let it uh, get a foothold in his mind and heart. Catch it at the right time. Ruthlessly reject it. One writer said, I learned something from a dog. When I was growing up, we had a dog in our home, and my dad would take a piece of meat and he'd put it on the floor and he would tell the dog, no! And he would test the dog. The dog knew that he was not to take the meat. But the dog would never look at the meat. He seemed to feel that if he looked at the meat, he wouldn't be able to resist the temptation. So he would look steadily in my father's face. Exactly. Joseph looks steadily in his father's face. You and I must look steadily and not focus on the source of temptation. Not entertain it, not let it get that foothold. Joseph took corrective measures and he stayed away from her as much as he could. In verse 10, it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. He stayed away as much as he possibly could. David and Karen Maines talk about mental fidelity. They said, there are many things that we do not allow ourselves to be exposed to in this wicked and foul society. 
Sometimes that's a conversation with someone else where we have to change the subject, or a TV program, a magazine, a newspaper that must be rejected. We can control these. People who fall sexually don't just fall automatically. They fall because they've been toying with things in their minds over a period of time. When these kinds of thoughts come, we put them out of our minds. There's a tremendous force in habit. And habitually, for years and years, whenever those temptations come through a magazine, billboard, or whatever, we refuse. This mental fidelity makes us unable to be violated as far as our marital relationship is concerned. He, he didn't make provision for the flesh. He took corrective measures. Uh, he stayed away, and then he fled away when she grabs him and says, lie with me, and he just left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Flee temptation. Two little girls are in a field on a farm, and as they're crossing the field, suddenly a bull starts coming toward them, and one little girl says, oh, we need to stop and pray. And the little girl says, no, we need to run and pray. <laughs> well, we see his overcoming of temptation. But think about our situation as compared to his. We're in a much better situation to overcome temptation. We have resources he didn't have. He didn't have a Bible. Moses wasn't even born yet. 400 more years before Moses starts writing. He didn't have a Bible. Uh, he didn't have... Uh, the death of Christ. Christ had not yet come and had not yet died. He didn't know about that. He didn't know why Christ died. Christ died not just to remove the guilt of our sins, but he died to break the dominion of sin and to change us. He died that we might live the way God said live. He died that in order that the law might be fulfilled in us. That we live by God's commandments, not perfectly, but progressively. He didn't have the, the fullness of the Spirit that's available to Christians today. He had the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, but he didn't have the fullness. The Spirit was poured out at Pentecost on the church and has been present in the church, available to the church, in a greater way, far greater way, than under the old covenant ever since Pentecost. You and I have the fullness of the Spirit that we can draw on to resist temptation. He didn't have Christian fellowship that you and I have available to us. We have far greater resources than he did to overcome temptation. Well, we see his victory and how he did it. Think for a moment about the temptress. Look at that side of it. You see, for years, I was more like Potiphar's wife than I was like him, like Joseph. I was the one doing the tempting. Anybody here like that? Where you're the one doing the tempting? You know, that's so evil. When you tempt someone, and we can do it in various ways, we can tempt them by our example, just the force of example. We can tempt them by making available to them the means of temptation, the means of vice, Think of a drugstore operator who carries in his drugstore girly magazines. Think of Holiday Inn who provides your X-rated and R-rated movies in their 
TV room, in the rooms there with the TV situation. And Holiday Inn made a conscious decision at their top level. We're going to do this to make money. And you can read about it in the book by uh, one of the founders of Holiday Inn who fought that and lost. We like to temptress when we do that. Or, of course, if we directly solicit someone, as she was doing. You know, when you, when you like to temptress, the sin is so bad. Because you're inflicting on your fellow man the worst evil that you can inflict on him. You're going to bring on him, if he yields to the temptation, the wrath of Almighty God, ultimately. And you have done him irreparable damage that you cannot undo. Would you take a virus of AIDS, an AIDS cell, and place it in someone's body? But when we tempt someone, when we play the part of the temptress, that's exactly what we're doing. We're doing something far worse than that. We're the closest to being like Satan when we tempt someone else. Hmm. Well... What about it? Are we committed as he was committed? Are we walking with the Lord? Are we calling things by their right name? Or are we renaming them? Is this something you're doing in your pattern of life that you're renaming other than what God calls it? Are we conceiving of it in the proper light, betrayal of trust of our fellow man or of God, sin against God, sin against Christ who died that we might not sin? Are we catching it at the right time, or are we entertaining the temptation? Do you have girly magazines at your house? I remember calling on a guy in my church in the hospital one time, and he was reading Playboy in the hospital. I told the doctor, let him die. Let him die. Are we taking corrective measures where we are not making provision for the flesh? Uh, we're fleeing temptation. What about it? People don't fall like that. There are things that lead up to it. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why should I look upon a maid? I had lunch with the chairman of the Billy Graham board some years back, and he said, when I was a young man, I was riding a train out in Texas, and I went back to the observation car and read a magazine, and after a few minutes, I put it down. I said, I don't believe this magazine is helping me spiritually. He said, I just made a vow. I said, Lord, I want to make a vow that I'm never going to allow my eyes to feast on anything that would hurt me spiritually. He said, the other day, my wife and I were walking through an apartment store, and I saw a magazine section, and there was a magazine that had a lot of flesh on the front, and said penthouse, and I thought, I ought to go see what that's all about. And then I thought, no, I made a vow that I would never let my eyes feast on something that would hurt me spiritually. He said, here I was 40 years later, and that vow was still keeping me. Isn't that interesting? If you have sinned, if you are living in sin now in some form or fashion, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. 
you can go to Jesus and you can find forgiveness, but you must go repentant. You must go purposing to turn from that and to burn it and to change it and to get rid of it. Maybe you have never made that initial commitment where you've received a master and trusted a savior. That's the starting place. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, what about it? Are you taking corrective action? Are you making provision for the flesh? Is there something you need to deal with, something you need to repent of? You need to go to Christ for cleansing and power to overcome. Have you made that initial commitment? If not, do so now. If you've never genuinely surrendered to Christ, invited Him into your life, asked Him to cleanse you from the guilt of your sins, pray like this. If you're willing to have a master and willing to be changed, Lord Jesus, thank you for that fountain. And I come to you now to be cleansed. I trust you as the one who died for me. And I surrender to you as my master. I purpose to turn from sin. Come and live in me and empower me to do so. Amen.